Good morning. You know, it starts as sort of a low rumble sometime near Halloween, I think. You know, as our part of the earth tilts away from the sun and our days get shorter, the darkness longer, cool chill sets in, and somehow in a breath, we get busy. (laughs) You know, we call that the holiday season, but at least for me and perhaps for some of you, that time of year is anything but holy. You know, that low rumble in the midst of autumn becomes an ever-increasing roar of activity, of expectations, and of preparations. There are recitals to attend. There's concerts to attend. There's those parties to attend. There's all the shopping to do. Or maybe this year we're not going to do the shopping, but then there's all the gifts to make. (laughs) There's the cards to send and receive. And the din gets even more intense with the disappointments of the season, the memories and regrets of what could have been or who should have been there, or even the loneliness that perhaps many of us share at this time of year, unable to express it into a public that seems hell-bent on joy. And the noise piles on and on, and there are these annual bizarre news stories about a war on Christmas who are trying to tell anyone who is listening that there is only one possible reason to celebrate. And there's this constant soundtrack of music demanding, demanding joy and demanding peace. And we're spinning We're spinning in this midst of a never-ceasing barrage of noise, both from outside and from within our own hearts. So by the time we reach the solstice, the noise has grown deafening and it grows louder still to Christmas Eve, where many of us will stand together and we sing Silent Night. (laughs) But you know, sometimes that song sounds more like a plea for relief instead of a simple hymn sung sincerely in peace. So then Christmas Day dawns, and for a moment, perhaps, we share in the simple joy of time together, of gifts that we give and the gifts that we may receive. And perhaps in that moment, even a breath of peace. But like a roller coaster... With that one last stomach-churning drop ahead, the noise comes back and it piles on and we have another week of the end of the year and there's the work to get done for the end of the year to close out that time. There's those projects you need to finish. There's all those requests for those end-of-year tax donations. And we're spinning again and the noise is growing louder and louder and, and, and there's... Oh, there's those lists. There's all those lists that the media puts out. There's those lists of books, of the best books of the last year that you didn't read. (laughs) And all that great music from the last year that you never had time to listen to. And there's the memories and the memorials to all the people who have died in the last year and whose passing you didn't even know. 
And all this is swirling around us as we prepare for yet another celebration with this clarion call of what are you doing New Year's Eve? And finally, and finally, when that blessed ball drops and the fireworks go off and at last, oh, sweet heavenly grace, the calendar turns, the calendar turns to this day, this first day of the year, this end cap to the holidays and in the cold and in the dark and in that sweet silence. We can at last breathe. Perhaps then today, this New Year's Day, could be the most holy of those holidays. For many years, my wife Caroline would receive, um, as a Christmas gift, she would often receive a calendar, a new calendar. Um, one of these nice wall calendars with the beautiful art or photographs for each month. And I remember a few years ago, several years ago, I was in our kitchen in performing what had become sort of an annual New Year's ritual and hanging the new calendar on the wall. And I was flipping through the pictures, the images of the artwork, and I was noting which ones were very beautiful to me, the ones that I was very compelled by. Looking forward to April. April was really nice. <laughs> September was pretty cool. I didn't understand November at all. <laughs> and somehow, in, during that ritual, I, my focus went from the images to those squares, those blank white squares marking the days, marking the weeks of the coming year. And they were empty. <laughs> Nothing written in them. No birthdays marked. No anniversaries. No business meetings. No trips, no vacations, nothing. A whole year that had not yet laid its claim on me. And I began to consider all that would fill up those squares, all those times and places that I would have to be, all those people that I will encounter, all those things that I would need to do. And almost immediately, I began to feel the weight of that year bearing down on me. You know, it all felt so obligatory. But yet somewhere in that peace of that morning, that January 1st, I began to see it perhaps a little differently. And where I had started to feel that sense of obligation, I now started to see those blank white squares on the calendar as containers for possibility. Containers for what is possible for me. Containers for what is possible for those I love. Containers for what is possible for all those humans being out in our world. And instead of dread and obligation, I began to be filled with this sense of abundance before me. And for a moment, at least, I began to feel that deep peace that I had been grasping for throughout that season's ending. Now, I would like to report to you today that I have maintained that sense of peace, <laughs> that awareness of possibility and abundance ever since hanging that calendar in the kitchen. And I would like to report that I am a very fine exemplar of spiritual practice and discipline, 
one worthy of your emulation and perhaps even awe. That would be really cool for me. Alas, I'm not at all. I'm kind of a mess. Because, you know, shortly after that epiphany in the kitchen, I slipped back into the din. I slipped back into the noise. That calendar, it filled up. And instead of possibility and abundance, those little squares went back to being tyrannical claims on my life. Went from a sense of freedom and a sense of peace to a sense of burden and obligation where my days are never my own. The Buddhist teacher and an author, Jack Cornfield, notes this phenomenon, this slip from our moments of enlightenment back into the mire of our everyday lives in his book called, and I love the title of this book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. <laughs> after the ecstasy, the laundry. After that enlightenment, after that peace, there's always the laundry to do. In that book, he writes about the struggle we have with this ideal of perfection of a perfect enlightenment, that guru on the mountain, against the reality of our lives. Fact of the laundry and everything else. How do we translate those moments of peace and grace and compassion that we feel? How do we translate that into the moments into our imperfect, human, messy lives? You know, I find the world that we live in often seems organized against us in this effort. For me, I find myself easily distracted from the things that I wish to focus on. You know, with the best of intentions, I envision myself sitting down to read a book or to study for my classes. I envision myself, I plan to write in my journal every day. I want to focus on my spiritual practice. I want to listen to more music. I want to work on learning to play the guitar. I make plans to walk in the woods or, quite frankly, to walk anywhere. <laughs> but then, I get out of bed. <laughs> and as soon as my feet hit the floor, the noise starts. All of those things that I need to get done before I can focus on those things that I want to do. You know, there's the morning ritual of bathing and getting ready for the day. There's the last check of the kids' homework in their backpack before they're off to school. The dogs need to be fed, which reminds me that I need to be fed, which reminds me that we're out of milk and I need to go to the grocery. And if I'm going to go to the grocery, I need to make the meal plan for the week so that I have a good list of things to go to the grocery with. And on the way to the grocery, I realize, of course, the car, car needs gas. And as I pull into the gas station, I'm thinking... I need to get the oil changed in this car. And speaking of change, I have these jars of loose change that are all over my house, and I really need to take them to the bank and exchange them for bills. And talking about exchange, you know, I have all this laundry at home that I need to take to the dry cleaner and exchange it for all the laundry I left there last week. 
But before I get any of that done, I need to call my father because I haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. And thinking about my father, I need to remember to email my sister about my father. And I sit down at the computer and I start to email my sister. And there's a half a dozen emails that I need to read and listen and respond to and click on the links. And then suddenly I'm in that mire of Internet and I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden the door opens and the kids are home from school. And they need help with their homework. And then I need to start the dinner. And then we need to clean up from the dinner. And then, and then, and then, and then. I'm back in the noise. I'm back in the din. But you know, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes I am able to find the time to sit in silence for 20 minutes or so and sometimes I'm actually able to write a few pages in a journal sometimes I'm able to read more than three sentences from a book without my mind racing with all the other stuff that I'm not doing because I'm reading but this is far from practice far from discipline because the next day the next day I'll probably veer off that path and into the noise again. I veer off into the despair that I will never be able to sustain that sense of freedom and abundance those empty calendar squares offered me. In the opening pages to Jack Cornfield's book that I mentioned, the After the Ecstasy of the Laundry, he tells the story of his entry into a Buddhist monastery in in thailand and as he entered the this this uh monastery he was told that he must bow to his elders and um being being a good american he he asked who his elders were it'd be the question i'd ask and he was told that his elders were anybody who was older than him in ordination time. I love that idea, ordination time. In other words, all those who had become monks before him were his elders, even if by just a day. And at first, this was okay. Cornfield says, you know, there's a lot of wise people in this monastery, a lot of wisdom and wonderful teachers, and it's easy to bow in reverence to those. But then there were also these kind of young monks, these 20-year-old kids who had come to the monastery probably to please their parents or maybe just because they got better food. They weren't there for spiritual discipline or spiritual enlightenment. They were just there. He found it really hard to find reverence to them. Or the old farmer who had retired into the monastery, who probably had never meditated a day in his life, sat around chewing tobacco. He found it hard to find reverence to bow to the farmer. And so he has this conflict growing inside him. How does he do this day after day? How does he bow to his elders? And he decided, he made, he decided finally to make it work. He decided with each bow to look for something 
in the person that was worthy of reverence. The wrinkles in that old farmer's eyes, the vitality and playfulness in the younger monks. He started to see the incredible possibilities in each and every person's lives. And with this change of perspective and with this change of heart, Cornfield says he began to love bowing, bowing to everything. It became his thing. He'd see something and it would move and he would bow to it because he saw the possibilities and he saw what can be praiseworthy in those, in those things and in those people. And he writes in the book, he says, the true task of spiritual life is not found in faraway places or unusual states of consciousness. It is here in the present. And it asks of us a welcoming spirit to greet all that life presents us with a wise, respectful, and kindly heart. We can bow to both the beauty and suffering our entanglements and confusion, to our fears and the injustices of the world, we can bow. So for me, and perhaps for you, we can together learn to bow to the abundance of our days as they are. You know, if we look for it, we can find that which is worthy of reverence in every moment of our lives in the din and the noise of our busyness in our distraction we can even hear that which is praiseworthy in our living but to do so we need to learn to bow now I don't mean literally although you may if you wish What I mean by learning to bow is we need to cultivate a practice. We need to learn to cultivate a practice, and not just any practice, but one that challenges us to look deeply into our everyday lives, to find those moments of reverence, of praise, of joy. A practice that opens the door of possibility, that opens our heart to seeing the life you are living in new Abundance. Now, as Mick described earlier, we all have this opportunity this month to engage in this 30-day spiritual practice challenge, which is an invitation to commit to your practice or commit to a new one for 30 days, starting in a couple of weeks. And along with that challenge, there are also the small bite springboards that are designed to challenge you to bow to your elders. In other words, to challenge you to take on a practice that will ask you to see your life and the lives of others with reverence and peace, with praise and with joy. So I invite you, I invite you to consider this day, this New Year's Day, perhaps the most holy of the holidays, a day wherein you give yourself the last gift of the season, the gift of being present in your own life. This day, 
Not because it marks the first day of a calendar year. New Year's can be any day. This day, because you are here at Wellsprings today. This is a community that instead of being organized against our efforts of spiritual growth, as much of our world seems to be, this community is instead intentionally organized to cultivate, to create the conditions for that growth and to lovingly and compassionately support the possibilities of abundance that lie within each of our lives. So I invite you then to sign up for a springboard or the 30-day challenge or both. To allow yourself, to allow yourself the gift of being supported by this community and to find in each day a container of possibility. I want to go back just for a moment to that day several years ago, that New Year's Day, where I had that moment in my kitchen where I'm hanging the calendar and I had that moment of peace. And I had that glimpse of what the abundant possibilities of my life could be. In that moment, for whatever reason, I had the presence of mind to write down sort of a message to myself, a reminder, a poem of sorts, now, I think maybe it's a prayer. As I close today, I want to share it with you. A new calendar. Dates unfilled. Times unclaimed. Birthdays unmarked. The holidays fade as the stupor subsides. As the winter sets in. And the quiet returns. A new calendar. Mistakes not made. Relationships not broken. Nothing to take back. The measurement of time as if it could be measured. As if it should be measured. As if I could stop its measure. A new calendar, abundance of possibility, possibility of abundance. And may it be so for us all. Let us pray together. God of our hearts, God of abundance, we are gathered here the start of a new year. A year that has not yet laid claim on our lives. A year full of possibility. May we be present to those possibilities. May we be present to the time we have together and may we connect our hearts one to another in love and in compassion in joy and in peace.
Amen.